But anyway, so today we're going to look at, is the Bible reliable? Most specifically, we're going to look at more, more of the New Testament. But 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us where the Bible came from. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then 2 Peter 1.21 tells us how we got the Bible. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard anybody casting dispersions on the Bible? They, you know, a lot of times you'll hear them say things like, um, you know, that, that book was written 2,000 years ago. How can you trust it? How can you accept it? What you're reading today is actually what the original author wrote. Men wrote that, and they've changed it thousands of times over the thousands of years that it's been out there. And so, you know, you really can't take it seriously. You hear that. And if you don't have an answer to that, it can dent your faith. It can it can harm the way you think about God's Word. Well, you also have people who aren't opposed to the Bible, who who may or may not be Christians. And wouldn't you like to be able to give them evidence that, that just strengthens their faith and to turn to those people who are critics and give them something that makes them think and dents their faith in atheism or agnosticism. <clears throat> you know, God's word was is, has been breathed out and again is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the most printed book in the entire world is the Bible. It's got over, they, they accounted for over 5 billion copies. And that was from a time period of 1815 to 1975 that I looked up online. Anyway, 15 billion copies of the Bible out there. Most uh, places, if you look up online, you know, what is the most uh, published book in the world? They, they have a caveat that, yeah, the Bible is, is the most, but it's like this religious book. And so then they go on to things like Harry Potter and whatever. But anyway, let's look at how we received our Bible, that the Bible that we have in our position today. Who decided what writings were scripture and were not? How did they make their decisions? We've received this book. We call it the word of God. We read it. We respect it. We cherish it. And we try to live our lives according to this book. Well, what, do we have any real reason to do that? So why are there only 66 books in our Bible? Aren't there any aren't there other gospels that are out there? And why didn't they make it in the, into the Bible? Are there what about the Apocrypha? Maybe you've heard of the Apocrypha. Why isn't that in our Bible today? And are those books God breathed? So let's look at the questions beginning. We'll, we'll look at the Old Testament initially. And it's kind of hard to the Old Testament is really old. And there's not quite the uh, the scriptural evidence that we have for the New Testament. So we kind of got to look at both of them a little bit separately. But where the New, where did the Old Testament come from? It came from the Jews. So the Jews, when they have their Bible, they break their Bible down into basically three categories or three sections. That's the Torah or the law, the first five books, the prophets and the writings is how they consider it. In the Jewish Bible, that's a total of 24 books. Whereas in, in our Old Testament, we have 39 books. Well, we're, why is there a difference there? Well, the difference is that the books of Samuel, we have First and Second Samuel. The Jewish Bible has Samuel. We have First and Second Kings. They have Kings. We have First and Second Chronicles. They have Chronicles. 
Another thing that's different is they have taken the 12 minor prophets and they've lumped them into one single book. So we're up to like 15 different numbers now. And then the books, we have Ezra and Nehemiah. They have that as one book in their Bible. So the Jewish Old Testament and the Old Testament in our Bible has exactly the same material. It comes from the Jewish, Jewish heritage. So when was the Old Testament canonized? What does canonized mean? Canonized means we recognize that, the leaders recognize this is Scripture. This comes from God versus this is fiction. You know, if you go into a bookstore and you're looking for a book to read and you know, you, when you know what you want, you know, you can go to his, historical stuff. You can go to poetry. You can go to nonfiction. You can go to fiction. So there, there are all those different categories of, of uh, writings. So all the books in the Old Testament, all the books in the Old Testament were, ri- were written at their time in history. And they became canon as they were written. So there were stages. The Jewish New Testament, it wasn't like a specific date that they said, oh, here's the scripture. Here's the canon. Here's our text. It was, it was over a period of a, a thousand, 1,500 years or more that those writings from Genesis to Malachi were written. And as they were written, the Jewish leaders recognized those books as being scripture and um, they were included. And as we know, after the book of Malachi was written, God kind of went silent for about four, 400 years. So there's confusion among critics today about the Council of Jamnia. So this is uh, the, the Council of Jamnia happened in A.D. 100. And <clears throat> the critics like to claim, well, it wasn't until A.D. 100 that the Jews decided what was their canon. Well, there are no records of anything being written down from the Council of Jamnia. So how do you come to a conclusion that that is when the Jews decided what their their canon was, what books were going to be included in their Bible? Any critic or any devout person could come up with any conclusion as to what they decided at the Council of Jamnia. And so anyway, that's that's a rumor out there or a a piece of information that critics use a lot of times to kind of cast dispersions on the Jewish old on on our Old Testament, on the Jewish Bible and say, well, they didn't even figure out what they wanted in the Bible until 100 A.D., which is simply not true. What most likely happened at the Council of Jamnia is they were just analyzing the books and discussing the books that they already had in their Bible. In 1947, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls produced no new evidence that any other book should be included in the Old Testament New Canon. And so let me, I meant to tell you guys this up front. Most of what I'm talking about today, most of this information comes from two sources. One is um, the book More Than a Carpenter, which is by Josh McDowell. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I recommend you do it. it. It really changed my life into understanding that I don't have a a faith based in blindness, but I have a faith based in evidence. And um, the other source is there's a book, there's a video. If you go on, I know it's posted on Answers in Genesis. It's called Y66. And I forget the name of the professor who gave that book, that, uh, that class, but it's a class on why there are 66 books in our Bible today. So, again, now between the New Testament and the Old Testament, there was a period of 400 years where God was silent. But that's when these books called the Apocrypha were written. And um, it's a little bit confusing because the, the King James Version that was published in 1611 
And even today, a lot of what we call Catholic Bibles will have the Apocrypha in there between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what are they? Um, if you search the Internet, you'll find some interesting titles that have, have the Apocrypha in them. One that I saw is um, Missing Books of the Bible. And another is the Apocrypha, 15 Books Omitted from the Bible. So that just makes you question, well, man, do I have all of God's Scripture Am I applying everything in my life that I should be? Is there something out there that I'm missing? And um, the, the answer to that is none of those books has ever been conscripted by the Jews or by Christians. Some of them contain historically accurate information. Uh, there was the Maccabean War after 70 A.D. And so you have Maccabeans 1 and 2, and that's a historical account. That's part of the Apocrypha. But some of it is simply fiction. Um, anyway. So let's remember also that during that time, that was a time when God was silent. So God didn't provide scripture during that 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament coming. The last thing I'll say about the Apocrypha, no Jesus nor any apostle ever quoted from any apocryphal book. So almost every other New Te Old Testament book is quoted somewhere in the New Testament. But no apocryphal book was ever quoted by Jesus or by an apostle. And so that alone is good reason to, to not consider it scripture and keep it excluded from the canon. So now let's move on to the New Testament. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There have only ever been four, four Gospels in the New Testament. They've always been Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Arrhenius of Lyons was a disciple of Polycarp who was martyred in A.D. 155, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. Irenaeus said that within 50 years of the death of John, only four Gospels were used, all other Gospels were rejected, and none contained the adult life of Jesus. By the way, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Their names are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are other Gospels out there. There is a Gospel of Thomas, Judas, Philip, Peter, and Mary. Guess who wrote those Gospels? It was not Thomas, Judas, Philip, Peter, or Mary. All of those people who were apostles or uh, close to Jesus were, were long dead before the apocryphal writings happened. So let me give you a little explanation of plagiarism then and now. So today, I'm sort of plagiarizing because I'm using other people's information. I'm, I'm hopefully not presenting it as my own that I came up with all these thoughts and, and did all the research and came, came to this. But today, when we plagiarize, that's what we do. We take somebody else's work that we say, man, that's some good stuff. I'm going to take it and I'm going to put my name on it and I'm going to get the credit for it. What they did in those days was, I've got some stuff that I want people to believe. So, But my name's Kevin Warren. Nobody knows Kevin Warren. They're not going to listen to anything Kevin Warren says. But hey, Thomas, he was the doubter. People recognize that name. So I'm going to write this stuff and I'm going to put Thomas's name on it. And then people will hopefully accept it as being something important. So the New Testament, how did it get collected? When did we decide? When did church leadership in the in the early days decide what was canon? What was scripture? There were there were lots of, uh, you know, letters floating around. We read about some in the Bible that we don't have today. In A.D. 150, the Mauritanian canon listed the first was the first list of the New Testament books claimed by the universal church. So in A.D. 150, Christ died roughly 40 
The apostles died, you know, within 40 years after that for the most part. And so within about 70 years, 100, well, less than that, sorry, 110 years from Christ's death, 80 some years from the apostles' death, we have a list of the New Testament books called the New Testament. In AD 180, the entire New Testament was accepted universally minus James, Jude, John, Second John and Third John, Second Peter, Hebrews and Revelation, and only a few people hesitated in accepting those as Scripture. In AD 240, Origen of Alexandria had all 27 books and called them the New Testament. In AD 325, Eusebius of Caesarea stated the churches all agreed to 22 plus 5. In AD 367, Athanasius of Alexandria said the 27 books were the complete list. He defined them as the New Testament, the exact same books that we have in our Bible today. And Athanasius also said not to add or to take away from those 27 books. At 397, in 397 at the Council of Carthage, the, the New Testament was confirmed by the church. So why did it take so long? It took somewhere between 80 and 320 years for these Christians to get their act together and decide what their scriptures were. And why did it take so long? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, the books or the letters were scattered all around the Roman Empire. And so you had people and maybe people had never heard of the book of Ephesians who lived down in northern Egypt. Maybe people hadn't heard of other books, and it took a long time to consolidate all of those letters that had been written and dispersed. No scroll, most of the, you know, most writings in those days was written on scrolls. No scroll could contain more than one or two books. And even once books were produced, they were large and expensive and just very difficult to, uh, to compile and have. This is one of the most important ones, I think. <clears throat> the church was immediately expecting Jesus to return. They didn't think it was going to take 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. We're glad it did. But, you know, Jesus may come tonight. He may come tomorrow. We don't know when he's coming back. But they were expecting him at any minute. So they didn't really feel compelled to compile a list of Scripture for the people who were going to be around 2,000 years from now because they didn't have any idea that there were going to be people around 2,000 years from when they were living. There was not a single leader or church that dominated that was able to make decisions independently for all Christians. So there was nobody to really define the canon. The leaders assumed the authority of the Gospels and the Apostles. So you have Jesus, you have the Apostles, and you have apostolic men who were associated very closely with the Apostles. So it was self-evident to the early church leaders that if someone fell into one of those three categories, then most likely their writings would, would be Scripture. If they weren't one of those three in those three categories... They really weren't even considered. Anything that they wrote wasn't going to be considered as Scripture. So the apostles who wrote the New Testament were Matthew, John, James, Peter, and Paul. The apostolic men who wrote books in the New Testament are Mark, Luke, Jude, and the author of the Hebrews. Of the apostolic men, Mark was the disciple of Peter. Luke was a companion of Paul. Jude was the brother of Jesus. And it was commonly thought, although not universally, that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. And then finally, <clears throat> only when heretics attacked the truth was the importance of the canon appreciated. You have, we've had heretics for a long time. <clears throat> Sorry, they, they, they came out early on. And it was when the heretics started um, trying to add to the Bible, trying to discredit the Bible, that the church leaders said, ah, we have got to 
canonize our scripture and make it known to people what they should be reading and accepting as the word of God. So what test did they use when they came to those conclusions? First, again, is it from Jesus, an apostle or an apostolic person? Does it come from somebody under the direct under the direct direction of an apostle? Was it authentic? Is it true? Do we see discrepancies in their errors that we know are incorrect factual errors? Ancient, has it been used from the earliest times? Accepted, were most of the churches who were independent operators, kind of like New Covenant Church is not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. There were churches out there that were independent operators. Did they use these writings as scripture? And was it accurate? Did it conform to the orthodox teaching of the churches? So when were the New Testament books complete? This is is a little bit interesting. The entire New Testament, the, the argument can be made. The entire New Testament was probably completely written before 70 A.D. And why do we come to that conclusion? Because in 70 A.D., Jerusalem fell and it was destroyed and the Jews were dispersed. And that isn't mentioned anywhere in the New Testament writings. Probably the most significant thing to happen to the Jewish people from the time of, you know, after Christ was that dispersion, that that. the, the destruction of the temple. And it's not even mentioned anywhere in the, new, in the Bible. So most scholars today think, agree, that all of the New Testament books were written prior to 70 or very close after 70 A.D. So now we're going to go into some tests. So if I'm going to look at any kind of ancient literature, how do I know that it is when I receive it today and I'm reading, how do I know that what I'm reading was what the original author wrote? And then we're, so we're going to look at some of those uh, things. The first thing we're going to look at is biographical test. Um, the biographical test says, since we don't have the original text, how sure can we be that the one we do have is an accurate transmission of the original? So the physical evidence for the New Testament, the, the And I'm going to begin with some you read from Isaiah this morning, which is great. The oldest complete New Testament contained in one volume is dated 300 years after the apostle, after the apostles. Sorry. Codus Sinaiticus is the name of this book. It's the oldest complete copy of the New Testament that exists that we know of today. It's on display in the Museum of England, and it is dated 300 A.D. That's 320 years before or some years after Jesus' death. But remember, all the New Testament books were written very close to 70 A.D. Scholars have collected approximately 5,600 ancient manuscripts. When I say manuscript, that's a book. Complete book of the New New Testament. There are over 20,000 portions of New Testament fragments, portions that have been collected from ancient texts. Now, let's compare that to some other writings that maybe you've heard of. So the history of Thucydides was written in 460 to 400 B.C. Well, that's when he lived, Thucydides. Today, we have eight copies of that manuscript, eight copies. And they were written 1,300 years after he died. The manuscripts of Herodotus are similar. Aristotle wrote his poetics around 343 B.C. We have 49 manuscripts from Aristotle. Everybody's heard of Aristotle? Pretty famous guy, right? When we think of when we hear Aristotle, we think, man, that guy was smart. We know a lot about him. We have 49 manuscripts of his, and they are dated 1400 years after his death. 
Caesar, the Gallic Wars. I tried to read this once. I started reading it. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't read it. It was too hard for me. I'm an engineer, so I wouldn't have to learn to read and write in the English language. But anyway, <clears throat> the Gallic Wars <clears throat> was written between 58 and 50 BC. We have 10 copies of that, and the early um, and they were written around 1050 AD. So about a thousand years later, the earliest texts of Tacitus, Tacitus, his Annals of Imperial Rome, which were written in 116 AD. The first bit, first six books of that are we have one manuscript of it that is dated eighty eight fifty. Books seven through ten are completely lost, and books eleven through sixteen again we have one manuscript there that were written in a thousand A.D. eight hundred years after his death. So again, we have fifty six hundred manuscripts of the New Testament, ancient manuscripts plus twenty thousand portions of it. Those where did those portions come from? Well, maybe somebody wrote on an index card so that they could put it on their visor as they were driving to work. Or maybe it came from a page you know, that was ripped out of, an, out of a whole book. But we have just an enormous amount of textual evidence for the New Testament compared to these other works that, that scholars would tell you. If you were taking a college class today in literature and you're reading you know, the Gallic Wars, your, your professor's not going to stand there and say, well, we only have 10 copies of this ancient manuscript and they're from a thousand years after Caesar died. But every word in here is actually, actually true. You can believe that they're not going to, they're not going to say that, but they don't have the doubt. The doubt only goes towards the Christian side, towards the Bible. Okay. So we have a lot of new Testament manuscripts. Are there any mistakes in these copies or is the new Testament that we have an accurate of the original that was written by the author of each of those books? So this is where I meant to talk about Isaiah. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. When they were discovered, they found a copy of Isaiah that brought. So the previous copy of Isaiah, the oldest copy we had of Isaiah before the Dead Sea Scrolls was found, was basically 1850 A.D. or 850 A.D. I'm sorry, 850 A.D. The new one that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls took that to 150 B.C. So it's a thousand years older. Than, than what we had previously had before that. And guess what? They lined up the, the Dead Sea Scroll Isaiah to the one that was a thousand years older. And voila, amazing. Xerox worked back in the 0800s. And we have an exact copy. Not an exact copy. I'm stretching. We have a, a very similar copy to uh, of the book of Isaiah. So copies of books, scrolls, papyri, and fragments of biblical literature have been discovered all over the world from different time periods, and they've been brought together, and scholars look at them. And again, we, <clears throat> we didn't have Xerox copies, so all of these were written by a person, with, by hand, with a pen or with a paper. And so are there differences in those? Yes, there are. I'm going to break the bad news to you. There are a lot of differences when we compare all these texts that were gathered from all over the world, written during time periods up to you know, thousands of years, and we bring them together and we find what mistakes or what they call variations. Well, the number of variations that we find in these manuscripts is somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 mistakes or variants. Well, shoot. I don't know why I call myself a Bible-believing Christian, because there's 400,000 errors in the Bible that nobody can really account for. Well, they can account for them. So most of these variants or mistakes fall into three categories. The first would be pronouns. 
So, or improper pronouns. Again, I'm not an English guy. I'm an engineer. But so if in one text they're talking about Jesus and they use his name Jesus and another text, they say Jesus Christ and another place they say Lord and another place they say, um, let's see. Yeah, Lord. And another place they say he. Did that change the meaning of that text to anybody in here? Jesus, Lord, Jesus Christ, he. All the same person, right? So it doesn't change the meaning of the word. Numbers. Okay, we ha- and I've run across this. You read through the Old Testament and somebody had 20,000 cavalrymen and horses. And then in another place, 220,000 cavalrymen and horses. Well, what's the right number? Somebody made a copy and error in the numbers. Okay, is your faith broken? Now that you know that there are some numbers that have been inaccurately transposed over thousands of years in the Bible. I hope not. My, my faith is not broken by that. And then the last most common error is in spelling. You can spell the name John, J-O-H-N. You could potentially spell it J-O-H-N-N. Did that change your faith in the Bible? Did it change the meaning of the, of the Scripture? No, it didn't. So those three categories of errors, mistakes, or variants accounts for about 90% of the three hundred to 400,000 errors that there are. So that leaves us to some others. So I'm going to give you an example. 1 John 1.4 can read, Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There are some manuscripts out there that read for 1 John one four. Thus we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Did that just crush your belief in the Bible? Okay. So the the bottom line to the variance and the mistakes, the three hundred to four hundred some thousand of them that are in there, is none of those mistakes vary in a doctrine or a significant teaching of Christianity. So What you're reading today when you read your Bible, you can believe is very accurate. Um, You know, God ensured that the New Testament contained the 27 books that we have today, no others, and the New Testament has been divinely preserved. So that was looking at the bibliographical evidence of the Bible. Let's look at the internal evidence. What is internal evidence? Is, Is the Bible credible? Is it true? Is it is it does it accurately accurately reflect what those people saw? The benefit of the doubt when you're reading something is given to the author. The critic doesn't get to walk in and say, well, I don't believe this. So they've got to prove themselves to me. You know, where there's a big argument in the world right now. Are you innocent until proven guilty or guilty until you prove yourself innocent? Well, historically and in writing, the author is innocent until he gives you some reason to suspect that he's guilty, that he's made an error. So let's look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account For you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. Again, that's Luke 1, 1 through 4. 2 Peter 1, 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
And 1 John 1.3, We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the writer should have received the benefit of the doubt, should receive the benefit of the doubt, unless they present some sort of error. Now, there were hostile witnesses in the audiences that, that the disciples preached to. And had they erred, they would have been called out on it. Can you imagine standing here and telling somebody, you know, for instance, New Covenant Fellowship. Yeah, we won the tournament in the softball. The Rockies won the tournament this past year. Well, that's kind of easy to refute. Uh, we won one game by sheer victory and two by forfeit. Anyway, so if you're going to stand up there and preach stuff that's false amongst people who already who are, who are a part of it and can uh, fact check you, you know, you're not going to you're not going to last real long as a preacher. Acts 2:22 Peter speaking said men of Israel listen to this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know He said guys you know this happened you know this is true you can't argue with it and there's really no record that anybody argued with what he said Acts 26, 24 through 26, Paul was in, Paul was before Festus. And he's, and at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense and said, you are out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, you are, your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, who was King Agrippa, is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. So the eternal internal evidence test tells us that the, the apostles, the people, the, the writers of the New Testament were honest and trustworthy and they wrote true stuff. There's no, no evidence that they falsified anything in there. External evidence. So now we've looked at the bibliographical. We've looked at the internal. Now we look at the external, which tells us what does his other historical evidence does other historical evidence confirm or deny what the document proposes. So Papias, who was the bishop of Hierapolis in 130 A.D., wrote of the Apostle John. He says the elder used to say this also. Mark, having been an interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately all that he being Peter had mentioned whether sayings or doings of Christ, not, however, in order, for he was neither a hearer nor a companion of the Lord. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who often adapted his teachings as necessary as necessity required, not as though he were making a compilation of sayings of the Lord. So then Mark made no mistake writing down in this way some things as he mentioned them, for he paid close attention to this one thing, not to omit anything that he had heard and not to include any false statement among them. And Irenaeus, who we talked about earlier, a student of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. Irenaeus wrote, Matthew published his gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, meaning the death of Paul and Peter, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in, in writing the substance of Peter's teaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, 
who also leaned on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living in Ephesus in Asia. <clears throat> then, <clears throat> pardon me. Then in Greek, Roman, and Jewish external documents, <clears throat> we have support for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by the Romans, the worship of Jesus as deity, the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus being the brother of James and the empty tomb. So all of those uh, five things, we have historical evidence that comes from non-Christian writings from the early time period. Archaeology has also confirmed countless passages which have been rejected by critics as unhistorical or contradictory to known facts. Luke, in particular, has become accepted as an incredibly accurate historian. There were, uh, I think his name is uh, Sir Walter Ramsey. I'm not sure if that's his name. I think his last name is Ramsey. was an archaeologist, British. He was not a Christian. Kind of just took the book of Acts and didn't use it because he was biased against uh, Christian work, against Luke. Well, when he started to use it, he, found, he made all kinds of discoveries. And every discovery he made confirmed that what Luke had written in the book of Acts was true. And he now calls Luke one of the premier archaeologists or premier historians uh, in the world. So to wrap this up, hopefully today when you leave, you will be boldly prepared to tell your critics and your friends that, yes, you believe the Bible. You know, it has been accurately handed down over the years at the direction of God Almighty. He ensured that the books he wanted in the Bible were revealed to the men who canonized it. You believe it because there is dramatically more manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other piece of literature known to man. The manuscript evidence shows no mistakes that affect a Christian belief or doctrine. The Bible also passes the internal and external evidence test of literature. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Second Peter one twenty one reads, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And finally, Proverbs thirty five through six reads Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. May God add his blessings to this teaching.